and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 244. My name's Terry Frost, and this time around I'm doing one movie, and I'm going to be waffling about some movie-related stuff as well. That movie is a 1979 American comedy, which is a little bit prophetic. It's called Americathon. It was directed by Neil Israel, and it stars John Ritter, Harvey Corman, Peter Regat, Fred Willard, Jay Leno, and Chief Dan George. So I'm going to be looking at that, and I'm also going to be talking about some other stuff as well. So sit back, I will get the contact details out of the way, and we can get the show on the road. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how have you been? You're looking good. Um, Yeah, I've been planning and getting organised for this trip to Sydney. I'm going to be there for nine days by myself, uh, house-sitting for my sister and brother-in-law. So I fly up on Tuesday night. It's Saturday as I speak. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to do a lot of YouTube videos, I've decided. There's a thing called Sculpture on the Beach, which is happening around Bondi, where they have enormous outdoor sculptures, a great big whole bunch of them for about a kilometre. So I'm going to go and check that out and get a video out of that. I'm also going to confront some ghosts from the past. I'm going to some of the places where I had some bad experiences as a child and in my teenage years, and I'm going to talk about them and kind of exercise the ghosts. So that's going to be a little harder to do, so I'm doing that on Thursday. Wednesday, I'm going to do the one at the Sculpture on the Beach and catch up with a good friend, Alex Ozan, who's also my travel agent. So, yeah, and then I'm going to play it by ear, but I'm going to get a lot of YouTube videos and a couple of podcasts as well because I'm going to have some quiet times in the evenings. So it'll be a good opportunity to sit down with the laptop and the headphones, and the mic I'm taking, and just podcasts. I'm going to look forward to doing that as well. So all of that's going to be happening, and it makes for a very busy time. Uh, The reason the podcast is late, and it is a few days late, and I apologize for that, is that Sally and I went to a Tuca in the middle of the week, which is about 200 kilometers away, up on the border with New South Wales on the Murray River, which is the largest river here in Australia, which doesn't mean much because it's not a big river, particularly in world scale. And uh, caught up with the outlaws because it's Sally, it was Sally's mother's birthday on Thursday. So we popped up there, had dinner with them, caught up at lunchtime, looked around a few shops, did a few things and got a video out for Sally's YouTube channel, which is being published on Thursday because she has a fortnightly schedule. Unlike me, she has a strict schedule and it works better for her and her process to have a schedule. For me, it's just whenever I like. I try to get them out once a week, but we'll see how we go. Uh, Yeah, so all of that's happening. I edited the sales video where I had tons and tons of little bits of video I had to put together. It's uh, it's a challenging process, and I'm kind of enjoying it too, particularly when it's not mine and somebody else selects the music, and I've got to make sure that I put in certain clips and all that kind of thing. She's a bit bossy at times, which is not a bad thing for this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that's going up on Thursday. And uh, the other thing I had to do was get a new backpack because the backpack I had was a bit small for my camera gear. So we went out and I picked up a new backpack, which is much larger. Hopefully it'll pass as carry-on. I haven't been on a flight for about three years, so I'm not sure, but hopefully it will. And, uh, yeah, so flying up to Sydney, flying back just after the beginning of November, It'll be a very productive time for me because I'll have a shit ton of spare time on my hands. There is one aspect of it that's disappointing. My beloved Google Pixel 2 XL phone shut itself a bit. It's uh, The fingerprint scanner stopped working, so I thought I'd take it down to Telstra and have them put it in for repair because it's still under warranty. That takes over two weeks, so my beautiful phone, which does fantastic videos and fantastic photography, is in the hospital. 
so I had to borrow Sal's old iPhone 7S, which doesn't have a camera anywhere near as good. So I'm a bit disappointed with that. I'm getting to be a bit of a kind of perfectionist, at least as far as the technology is concerned. I've got some workarounds I can use to make the videos I do with that phone pop a bit more, but it's still noticeably different than the Pixel 2. So it's going to take about two weeks for the Pixel 2 to be repaired or replaced um, with a refurbished model. So we'll see how we go with that because I really like the phone and I kind of miss it, which is odd. Um, I don't usually get emotionally attached to pieces of technology quite to the point I have with this phone. Fortunately, one of the nice things that the Pixel does is you've got all of the apps backed up on a cloud. So when you factory reset the phone or get a new handset, all of the apps you previously had will automatically download from Google once you're attached to a Wi-Fi network, which I'll do when we get at home after I get back from Sydney. So that's really useful, and it means that everything from the wallpaper to Filmic Pro, which I use for taking videos with the phone, is going to be there ready waiting for me. But it pisses me off that it takes about two weeks. bit disappointed with that. So what have I been watching? Oh, a few things, actually. I've done a fairly productive week as far as movie viewing is concerned. Did watch a really weird extreme Tokyo comedy horror movie called Robo Geisha, which has got some very <laughs> well-used but limited special effects. There's a lot of CG work with blood, gore, decapitations and all sorts of things. It's crazily weird and it ends up with a giant robot Japanese castle climbing the side of Mount Fuji with a plan to let off a nuclear weapon and reactivate the volcano on Mount Fuji. It's crazy, this movie. It is totally bugfuck crazy. But I like it. It's got an audacity in its silliness. And it, it kind of works. It, it's fairly low budget as the... Um, settings and the uh, cinematography and everything else show but it's fun and movies that are fun are to be treasured appreciated and loved i then watched a pre-code horror film uh, an american one called dr x with lionel atwill Faye ray and lee tracy in it it's in color but it's in that kind of early very intense uh technicolor from the time it's about a series of murders that take place with the bodies being partly cannibalized, the um, murderer is described as being a disfigured monster who's the killer. And the um, suspicion falls on an institute run by Dr. Xavier, played by Lionel Atwill. And the kind of weird and fucked up bunch of scientists he's got doing medical research in this place, which is, um, it's, it's got a very of its time feel. And it's creepy as well. Uh, there are some really nice bits of special effects work. And you can see that they're trying to tell a story in a really interesting way about a totally fucked up horror type subject. And it worked for me. It was directed by Michael Curtiz, who went on to many greater things. But Dr. X is fun. If you see the return of Dr. X with um, Humphrey Bogart in it, which is one of his few ventures into that kind of a genre... It's got nothing to do with the original film. But watching Dr. X was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy checking it out. And because it predates the Hayes Code, it's got a little more of an adult approach to certain subjects, which is kind of cool and welcomed. And yeah, the more I learn about the Hayes Code and the more I see movies that are affected by it, the more I'm pissed off about that. Yes, even 80 or 90 years after the fact, I'm pissed off with a decision made on the other side of the planet by politicians. That's part of what it is to be a classic movie buff, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still pissed off with the Hayes Code. I'm still pissed off with the House Un-American Activities Committee. I'm still pissed off with some of the casting decisions made in classic films. Uh, yeah, If you really wanted to, you could have a two-minute hate about 50 or 60 different things about classic cinema. But I'm not going to. I'm going to instead talk about the other movies I've seen. I rewatched Bell Book and Candle, which I've talked about previously on a podcast. But I picked up a copy of it um, really cheaply while I was out and about the place in the last few weeks. And so I rewatched it. It's a bit of fun. Love Kim Minovac in it. Um, her character on rewatching it is crazily vulnerable. And when I did the podcast about it, I said that she, when she became a normal human being rather than a witch, and spoiler there, 
um, she became less interesting. But I kind of rethought it on this viewing. And her character doesn't isn't comfortable with being a witch. She isn't comfortable with the longevity. She isn't comfortable with any aspect of being a witch. And what she's doing by falling in love with the character played by James Stewart and going through that process of becoming human is finding her best self. So I kind of went 180 on the previous way I saw that. Yes, she had extraordinary abilities as a witch, but she didn't want them and she didn't find anything useful to do with them that wasn't selfish. So she took a path in her life that let her move on to becoming a better person. And that part of that was losing her powers and becoming mortal, falling in love and happy ending, all that kind of shit. So it's interesting on reviewing some films how you kind of have a much more kind interpretation of the characters' behaviours and, and psychology, depending on where you are in your own life. It's a, it's a wonderful journey we're all on as far as movies are concerned. Now, while I was in, Ch- in Echuca, as is my nature, I was looking around for second-hand DVDs, and for some reason, the second-hand bookshops and the antique stores in Echuca have lots of DVDs and things. So I picked up a copy of Danger Diabolic for $1. It was in a CD case. It wasn't in the original kind of um, proper DVD case, but it works really nicely, and it's a good quality thing. There's no scratches, there's no glitches, nothing like that. But $1 for a copy of Danger Diabolic, the John Philip Law movie with Marissa Mel and uh, Terry Thomas is in it, Michelle Piccoli, directed by the great Mario Bava. Rewatching it was fun just kind of grooving on the comic book sensibility of it. Uh, the beautiful inventiveness of the visuals that Barber did with hanging mats and all sorts of other bits of trickery to give us things he couldn't build sets for. It really is a joy of 1960s cinema, that movie, and rewatching it is a lot of fun, as well as the fantastic Ennio Morricone soundtrack. There's nothing not to love in that movie. It's... Uh, it's a groovy and lovely thing, and I enjoyed revisiting it. And I want a diabolic mask. It probably wouldn't work with my beard and my round and aging facial features. But one of those kind of diabolic masks would be a very cool thing to have where it modeled on my own rather different features. But uh, so I watched that, and just kind of in the middle, halfway through this monologue at the start of the podcast, I took a little time off because I had to watch a movie. And it's for the ABC radio gig I'm doing next Wednesday. We're going to actually record it by phone rather than in the studio because I'm going to be in Sydney. And that movie I went to see was Bad Times at the El Royale with Jeff Bridges in it, Chris Hemsworth, a whole bunch of other people, Dakota Fanning's in it. And, um, yeah, it's uh, directed by Drew Goddard who did The Cabin in the Woods which is a good pedigree anyway. It's very kind of post-Tarantino, neo-noir. It's a very hard movie to talk about very much, either because if you start talking too much about it, all of the plot points and the reveals and the uh, misinterpretations and people not being who you think they are at the start of the movie, but being either a better or a worse person or just a very different person, all of that shit happens in this film. And I liked it. Um, I don't think it's perfect by any means. I think that there are moments when the direction should have ramped up the tension more than it did. And that that kind of made it flag for me in a couple of very crucial scenes slightly. But, um, yeah, I recommend it. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's not getting a lot of of love at the box office. And I think it deserves more. There's some really nice acting roles in there. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the actors who are really good, but... There are some newer actors who are doing some really revelatory work in this one. Jeff Bridges gives a wonderfully nuanced performance. Hemsworth is creepy as fuck, playing a cross between Jim Morrison and Charles Manson. And, um, yeah, um, check it out when you get the chance to, because it's, like I said, not perfect, but it's very watchable. And the selection of music in it is pretty top-rate too. One of the centrepieces of the lobby of the El Royale Hotel, in which a lot of the action takes place, is a big Wurlitzer jukebox with one of the best bunch of records in it you can imagine. Check it out. One of the things I thought I'd do this episode, and I may well continue it if I get a response to it, 
don't knock the microphone, um, is recommend a book. Movie reference books are something that in my man cave seem to be spreading like a cancer. I'm getting more and more of them. And as I kind of winnow away other things, they, the space gets taken up by movie reference books, which is not in itself a bad thing. Now, I've got a copy of a book here from 1969. The back cover's nearly off, so it's obviously deteriorating. Paperbacks were never meant to last. And given that this one's well over 40 years old and I've thumbed through it more than once, it was originally owned by a guy called Gary Dennison. I got it secondhand, but he's written his name in the inside front cover of it. The book is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a whole bunch of movie essays by Pauline Kael. You can get a more recent version of it, and you can also pick up some copies, not too expensively, on Amazon, because people aren't doing dead tree editions of books much anymore. But this one's got a whole bunch of good stuff, and it's got a dead zone in the middle of it. But in general, Pauline Cowell's essays are always great. Um, there's the first, it's broken up into sections. The first one's called Trends, with a few different essays um, about movies, including Cat Baloo, because this is from the 60s, remember? The Sand Pebbles Grand Prix, Funeral in Berlin, Quilla Memorandum, Blow Up. Um, there's a whole bunch of things on John Wayne Westerns called Saddle Saw, El Dorado, The War Wagon, and The Way West. And about Bonnie and Clyde. Now, there's a big section in the middle about the making of a movie that everyone's forgotten now called The Group, which um, I've watched and it doesn't hold up particularly well. But then there's a whole bunch of reviews of movies in the 60s, which is really great. And they then she does a couple of things that are really, really top-notch. And the first one is a few essays, one on Marlon Brando, an American hero. Next one's about Orson Welles as he was in the 1960s and his career for the 20-odd years before that. And the producer, Stanley Kramer, there's an essay about that. But um, she then does something really spectacular, which I love. There's an essay called Movies on Television, which she talks about watching classic films from the 30s and 40s on television in the 1960s. Now, it was a very different thing than watching them now. The aspect ratios were off. There were commercials in the middle of it. It wasn't the same thing as watching something on a widescreen through a streaming service the way we have it now. But she makes some valid points about memory and how we see movies differently now than when we first saw them, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, depending on how old you are, and how that nostalgia changes how we feel about some movies and how a lot of movies which weren't very good at all suddenly get prominence because they've turned up somewhere. For instance, on our streaming services, um, the streaming terrestrial TV services, there are a couple of channels that uh, Channel 7 here in Australia and Channel 9 run called 7 Flicks and Gem, I think it is. And they've got a tendency to run old movies because they can get them bloody cheap. And watching movies on those services, even though they're widescreen and they're high definition and we've got a sharp picture, is a bit of a frustrating thing because some of the movies are old, they're in Academy Ratio and they keep getting busted up with commercials for things you'd never buy. One of the things I find as I get older is more and more commercials are geared at younger people. So there's shit there I wouldn't buy even if I was younger and had the money. And so I find watching commercials a very frustrating thing. But they also do some really old films like World War II propaganda films. There are a couple of those which I may well do a future podcast about because there are a few of them that are really interesting films. They're usually low budget, usually done by a studio like Columbia. And um, they really are over the top from a propaganda point of view, but realising the audience and what they were trying to put across at the time, you can understand why they're racist as fuck too. But um, yeah, so I kind of reread the essay from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, movies on television. So it's got a very simple name. It actually appears in the Oxford Book of Essays as well, which has got essays from the year dot until very, very recently. And it reads crazily well. And I can empathise with a lot of what she says about watching movies in a different medium from that first way that you watch them in a big cinema. Maybe you were young, maybe you were kind of getting out of the rain on a rainy day or getting into air conditioning on a hot day. You hadn't seen the film before. 
it may even have been pre-internet, so you didn't have much of an opportunity to find out much about the films before you actually put your ass in the seat and watch them. And how that's a, a crazily different experience than watching it at home where you can pause things these days. Uh, you couldn't do that, of course, in Pauline Kael's time. But the difference in the experience of viewing also changes the experience of watching the film itself. So, and, and the way that we interpret it and the way that we feel fond about certain things and we watch a movie that we liked a lot when we were younger but suddenly realised it was sexist as fuck and a lot of crap. Revenge of the Nerds being one of the cases you can use for that. And, um, yeah, so Pauline Kael, I don't always agree with her. There are movies I really disagree with her about. Umbrellas of the Borg being one and The Young Girls of Rochefort being another. But um, I always kind of respect where she's coming from. That's one of the qualities that I like in somebody who's a critic of certain things. Even when I disagree, they're, what they say is thought-provoking, well-reasoned, comes from an angle I can understand, even though the interpretation they take from that angle is different than the interpretation I make from uh, my own experiences of you. And one of the things, of course, is that we all bring our lives, our pasts, our politics, our um, viewpoint on the world into a cinema with us when we go to see a movie. And so that means that nobody, no two people really see the same film because it's filtered through a whole bunch of different perceptual and cultural filters that are very different for each person. And um, that makes it, you know, it kind of limits the value in some ways of criticism while validating it in others. Uh, what Reading what two or three different critics say about a movie can be a very educational experience because you can tell which ones know their stuff, which ones are coming at it fresh without too much knowledge about things and which people are basically shills for the studios. So a lot of different things come in there. And so I can't highly enough recommend reading as much Pauline Kale as you can. Even when she's talking about a movie you haven't seen, you may well want to see it after you read what she has to say. And if not, it may lead you on to another film or another film. It's a bit what, like watching Scorsese's documentaries about the American film and My Voyage to Italy and things like that. They kind of lead you down a path that you can explore from yourself. And um, that's always a valuable thing. So what I might do is every episode of Paleo Cinema, at least, I'll recommend one movie book. And this one, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which got its name from a movie marquee that Pauline Kael saw when she was in Italy. Um, and she saw some Eurospy comedy called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I've seen a trailer for, but I haven't actually seen. And she thought that typifies popular film. Those <laughs> two repeated words are what popular film is about, Kiss Kiss and Bang Bang. So she kind of rolled that into the title and immortalised it. And, of course, it was later borrowed by Shane Black for a very fun, very successful and very wry movie. So check out Pauline Kale's stuff. Um, she's the kind of movie critic that educates as well as entertains. I mean, there were some great female movie critics in the past. In England, there was Dillis Powell, who did a lot of um, work from the 40s till the 70s, I think. And we've got Pauline Kale in America. Australia less so. We've got people like Margaret Pomerantz, who's historically um, worked with David Stratton for a long time, criticising and sharing her passion for movies. But I think that I, in some ways I learn more from a female movie critic than I do from a male movie critic. Because, again, it's that kind of perceptual filters that people bring to the viewing of a film. And having a woman's point of view or somebody who's very culturally different from me gives me something new when they're willing to share those perceptions. It's always a lot of fun for me. So I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about Americathon, and I'm going to talk about some other stuff as well, as I think it up. So here's the trailer for Americathon. Actually, I'll play a bit of music, and then I'll do the trailer for Americathon. So I 
walk a little too fast And I drive a little too fast And I'm reckless, it's true But what else can you do At the end of a love affair So I talk a little too much And I laugh a little too much And my voice is too loud When I'm out in a crowd So that people are apt to stare Do they know, do they care That it's only That I'm lonely and low as can be And the smile on my face Isn't really a smile at all So I smoke a little too much And I drink a little too much And the tunes I request Are not always the best But the ones where the trumpets blast So I go at a maddening And I pretend that it's taking her place But what else can you do At the end of a love affair? Do they know, do they care That it's only That I'm lonely and low as can be And the smile on my face Isn't really a smile at all So I smoke a little too much And I drink a little too much And the tunes I request are not always the best But the ones where the trumpets A maddening pace And I pretend That it's taking her place But what else can you do At the end of a That, of course, was the best male jazz singer in history, Johnny Hartman, with The End of Love Affair, which is one of my favourite songs by one of my favourite singers. So uh, now it's time to go totally in the other direction and to talk about an absurd, silly 1979 American political comedy. Here's the trailer. We interrupt this theater for a bulletin from 1998. The year America ran out of gas, oil, and cash. Flash. People have stopped driving cars and started living in them. Flash. The president has sold the White House, raffled off the tool of the unknown soldier, and moved into a rundown condo in Southern California. Hi. United States of America. I'm President Roosevelt. This is my cabinet and my old lady. Flash. The city of San Diego has been bought by Mexico. <laughs> Flash. The Jews and Arabs have joined forces to form the United Hebrew Republic. Bad planning is why your country is in the toilet. Her country is flat broke. I know a way to raise money. A telethon. Taking up a collection before America's all gone. If this is a movie, it must be an America thought. Ladies and gentlemen, a spectacular American con event for the first mother-son boxing match. We could sell Cleveland, but nobody's buying. We could trade in all our cars, but nobody's driving. And now, Meatloaf versus the last living automobile. You gotta grab them by their TV screen. Look at me, damn it. Ooh. I'm not a country, I'm not an office, I'm not a decorative seal, I'm a person. I'm a man, I'm a man who wants to make love to you. Oh, 
Chet Roosevelt, your president, and I love you. The freeways are jammed now. Cars have disappeared from the scene. Cause going to work or to play, they use a whole other kind of machine. Peter Bergman and Phil Proctor, the two guys who wrote Merikathon, were part of the Firesign Theatre, who were an absurdist comedy troupe that started in 1966 with a Los Angeles radio program called Radio Free Oz. They were absurdists, they were crazy, they were iconoclastic, they basically wanted to tear down things, which was very, very hippie at the time. The very name of the group was pretty hippie, because um, all four of the original people involved, Phil Austin, Peter Bergman, David Osman, and Phil Proctor, were born under fire signs, Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius, so they called it the Fire Sign Theatre. And you can't get any more hippie than that. So in uh, they've made a few movies. Uh, there are a few uh, Fire Sign Theatre alumni movies. Let me just grab my scroll down. There's a movie called Zachariah in 1971, which I saw at the cinema in 1971. Haven't seen it since with John Rubenstein, Don Johnson, Country Joe and the Fish, Dick Van Patten. Um, And yeah, I don't remember a bloody thing about it because I haven't seen it since the 1970s, but I really should revisit that one because that's the sort of thing I do. Uh, Tunnel Vision, uh, which had Phil Proctor in it, in 1976, a weird movie that came out the same year as Americathon, J-Men Forever, where Proctor and Bergman took apart a compilation of Republic science fiction serials, Republic Studio science fiction serials from the 1940s, and put together a new narrative on them. Um, it was really, really popular in a certain kind of cinema in Australia, places like the Valhalla in Sydney and Melbourne and other kind of cult hip cinemas would show things like J-Men Forever and people would love them in between showing reruns of Plan 9 from Outer Space and Robot Monster and, of course, uh, Mr. Mike's Mondo Video, those kind of movies. It was very much in that kind of style. And Americathon is kind of right in there. It, um, As the trailer says, it's in the near future of 1998, the U.S. has run out of oil. Americans are living in their now stationary cars and using uh, and getting around by jogging, riding bicycles, roller skating, and skateboarding. Most Americans wear sweatsuits because of that. Uh, paper money is worthless, and business transactions are being conducted in gold, including coin-operated elevators. And the um, president is a guy called Chet Roosevelt, who is um, against all expectations of. American presidents, really unqualified for the job. Uh, he's cosmically inspired a former governor of California who's done EST in Scientology and basically is um, optimistic and uh, almost a happy clapper without the Pentecostalism. Um, the federal government sold the White House and they now live in the Western White House, which is a sub-lease condominium in Marina del Rey, California. The nation's bankrupt and owes money to a character called Sam Birdwater who owns, basically he holds all of the debts that the country has. Uh, the irony here, of course, is that Sam Birdwater is a First Nations American guy played by Chief Dan George. So he's uh, so Sam Birdwater calls in the country's debts and he's going to sell it off unless they can raise billions and billions of dollars somehow. Now, they have no idea on how to do this. The president has no idea. All he wants to do is get laid and for people to be nice to him. Again, something no American president has ever wanted. And so they call in uh, a media expert 
Eric McMurkin, played by Peter Regat, who was in Animal House, amongst other things, and also in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt for a few seasons. Still working as an actor and still a, a lovely guy. He was on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast and had it, uh, was, seemed to be a very personable gentleman. So they come up with this idea of having a telethon to raise the billion, $200 billion that America needs to stop itself from being bankrupt. So they hire a TV celebrity called Monty Rushmore, played by Harvey Corman, to host it. What they don't know is, A, that one of the presidential advisors, Vincent Vanderhoff, played by Fred Willard, is secretly plotting to have this telethon fail so that the representatives of the United Hebrew Republic, which was formed by the merger of Israel and the Arab states, can purchase the rest of the country. So he's the one who suggests they get Monty in. Monty's um, doing a really bad sitcom at the time where he plays a transvestite single father. Uh, Again, this is 1979. It wouldn't play in um, contemporary anything, really. The Americathon is going to run for 30 days and they're trying to raise the money. Uh, Fred Willard's character tries to kind of upset things in a number of ways. He books a whole bunch of acts like 25 ventriloquists in a row to try to get things going, but somehow money starts pouring in. There are all these other novelty acts. There's a really weird Vietnamese um, punk band run by a character called Mooling Jackson, played by Zane Busby, who is not Vietnamese, and she does the worst racial stereotype of a Vietnamese woman you're ever going to see. Um, She's the Papillon Susu of Vietnamese person imitators, if you get that reference. Uh, So leaving that aside, again, it's 1979, and everything's fucked up in 1979. The past is a different country. They fucked up everything in those days. But you do get some really weird and wonderful set pieces. You get Meatloaf fighting a car with axes and morning stars and spears and ultimately defeating the car. You get a kid who's decided to um, skateboard all the way across America to raise funds for a Americathon, and we see um, him there. You get a really weird boxing match between Jay Leno playing a guy called Larry Miller and his mother, there's a um, father, mother and son boxing matches, which kind of you know, pays off nicely as a comedy piece. They get George Carlin to narrate the movie, which gives it a little bit of comedic cred. And again, it's kind of just totally off the wall, bug fuck crazy stuff, mocking the idea of American exceptionalism, which is something which, speaking as somebody who's not American, we should be doing much, much more often, particularly in these benighted days. This morning cast has some interesting people in it as well. Richard Schall, who was a comedian I liked a lot. Alan Arbus, who was Diane Arbus's husband and also played the psychologist in MASH. Turns up, as I said, uh, Jay Leno turns up. Elvis Costello turns up in this in an early appearance. It's... Um, it's a little bit hit and miss at times. I think they should have gone harder on the satire, but for some reason they didn't because they were too wrapped up in doing it as an absurdist thing and kind of thumbing their noses at a lot of things that um, American people at the time cared about, like cars and status and wealth and all those other things, which, of course, American people have now discarded as totally immaterial to living good lives. There are some weirdly prophetic bits in this movie too, which I just got off Wikipedia. I was thinking about them when I watched the film, but I'll just lay them out as they have here. Uh, People's Republic of China embraced capitalism and becomes an economic superpower. Nike becomes a huge multinational conglomerate. The Soviet Union collapses. In this movie it's based on having a nuclear war with China, but in Reality, of course, it was somewhat different. America has a devalued dollar and is heavily in debt to foreign lenders. The prevalence of reality shows on TV is there. Network television dealing with taboo subjects. And um, a governor of California becoming president, which happened a year after this film's release. But Americathon is a really great concept. I mean, having the interesting concept of a post-oil America and the kind of descent of an empire is something you can have fun with it uh, there are enough comedy ideas that can be generated with it for it to work 
But I don't think it does in this case. I think that they went too far into the absurd side of it where they really could have gut-punched and made it strongly satirical. They kind of you know, gave it love taps in a sense. One of the critics said that the movie had a good half-hour concept stretched out to an hour and a half. And I can kind of see that point. They don't really give it a reasonable arc and they throw so much tackiness at it. And a lot of the acts are quite tacky and silly and not focused. I mean, one of the things about satire is you can use it as a baseball bat and or a bludgeon and beat people over the head with it and they're going to stop paying attention after a while. But satire at its best punches upwards, which this movie does to a certain extent, but it also acts more like a scalpel than a bludgeon. You've really got to kind of work out what you want to attack and slice it to pieces. You don't want to beat it into submission because that's much less interesting. I think around that time, maybe America was ready for some strong, nasty satire. I know the English were. They, were, they had Thatcher to contend with, uh, who gets some name-checked in this um, movie as well because the UK ends up being one of the more recent states of America. Uh, there are all sorts of weird little bits and pieces there. Um, one of the Dakotas becomes the first all-gay state in America, which is just passed off lightly as a um, as a comment in there, making more fun of homophobia, I suppose, than anything else. But it really, you know, they, they, I think it needed a couple more passes on the scripting before it became a thing. It was originally done as a play by um, Proctor and Bergman, and I think a rethink would have worked for it. It's easy for us to say retrospectively what should have happened with a particular thing, but I like my, I like strong satire. I like satire that kind of gut punches and takes people down a back alley and then slices them to pieces like Scaramouche or Zorro. But this movie, unfortunately, doesn't go that going that hard. And that's a bit of a shame. Uh, the movie has been getting a lot of kind of airtime lately because of events in Washington over the last two years, and people are kind of looking for parallels in cinema. The movie a couple of years after this that uh, was about it was a political thriller by Andrzej Pakula about the economic collapse of America. That's a movie called Rollover, which had Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson in it. Um, Chris Christopherson got a Razzie nomination for his acting in it, but uh, it's about. America not refinancing its loans to other countries and uh, a whole bunch of economists and people like that trying to save the thing. And it doesn't end well. There's a total economic collapse of the whole world. There's a kind of domino effect in the economics as America um, falls apart economically. All of this happens off screen and they concentrate on the love affair between Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson. We've got Hume Cronin in there as well. Bob Gunton, uh, might be worth revisiting that movie because Pakula is usually pretty tense and tight with his political thrillers. America Thon was fun while I was watching it, but in retrospect, it's kind of, you know, you can kind of enjoy it while you're in the midst of it, but later on you go, yeah, okay, yeah, it's fun. One of the problems with doing political satire like that these days is that reality has made itself satire-proof in a way. The things that are happening are just so over the top and so outrageous and so unthinkable only 30 months ago that we really don't have anywhere to go with it. It's the same problem they have with the James Bond movies. They don't know how to make a James Bond movie in the age of Trump because the geopolitical landscape has shifted so suddenly and so catastrophically and so absurdly that there's a kind of, you know, how do they go about it? Is James Bond going to be working with Americans? How's he going to approach the fact that America's foreign policy is a dumpster fire? All of those kind of things. So in a sense, the 21st century, take away from the second decade of the 21st century, but going into the third decade of the 21st century, is that the world has become satire-proof in some ways. And that's a bit of a shame. Uh, we've got to find that kind of reality. You've got to uh, keep waiting until our feet hit the bottom of the pool. And that's a shame because I love a good satire, particularly good political satire. But at least for the next, I'd say, 10 years, it's going to be bloody hard to do one that works.
and that in itself is a shame. So we can go back and we can kind of rake over the ashes of a movie like Americathon and see how satire was done in simpler and less absurd times and maybe kind of work out a way to get back to less absurd times than we actually live in. I'm going to cut this a little bit short because it's um, I've got so much stuff to do at the moment. I apologize. I will make a longer episode next time around. But I'll let you know what I'm going to be doing for the next episode of Paleo Cinema Podcast. I'm doing the 1968 comedy Bye Bye Braverman with George Siegel in it and Jessica Walter. And I'm looking through the list here that the movies I've got at hand. And I might well do... Yeah, why not? I'm going to do the 1947 movie Brighton Rock with Richard Attenborough in it, based on a Graham Greene novel. Um, it's something a bit meaty to go after this kind of absurd and fairly light comedy that I've just waffled about for a while. Anyway, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies, watch some bad movies, watch some fun movies, watch some movies that your parents would be ashamed that you ever saw. Um, I'll be back next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast. I'll be recording that in Sydney in the apartment of my sister and brother-in-law up in sunny Maroubra. And I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Take it easy. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to the people you love. And don't suffer political fools gladly. Uh, I'll leave you, of course, as usual, with the credits, and I'll leave you with a bit of music after them as well to just fill out the time a little bit. As usual, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash paleocinema and throw me a little bit of pocket change every now and then to keep the hosting going for the podcast. Um, Let me just pick the music before I go. Yeah, after the credits, uh, it will be Stacey Kent singing a jazz standard, Polka Dots and Moonbeams, which is very cool and it's a cool interpretation of it so in the meantime it's time to mosey off into the sunset i'll talk to you later here are the credits for paleo cinema podcast and martian driving podcast done in the style of movie credits to honor the people who support this podcast thank you to tom the focus puller sarah the special effects technician ian the caterer grant the technicolor consultant claire the script doctor Gary the prop master Morris the musical director Jan the dialect coach Arm and our key grip Matt the rattlesnake wrangler Elaine our scientific advisor Julia our casting director Chris our camera operator Christopher our gaffer Miss Jane our wardrobe mistress Tansy our foley artist Alyssa our location scout Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. Mark D., our extra and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. A country dance was being held in a garden. I felt a bump then and oh beg your pardon suddenly I saw polka dots and moonbeams wrapped around a bug nose dream the music started and was I a perplexed one held my breath and said may I have the next one in my frightened arms polka dots and moonbeams wrapped around a pug nose dream there were questions and 
other dancers As we floated over the floor There were questions But my heart knew all the answers And perhaps a few things more and laughter I learned the meaning of the words ever after and I'll only see polka dots and moonbeams when I kiss my pug nose dream Kiss my dream. 